Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Dr. Aaron Rock has served as a pastor, as a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians think Christianly about all of life. And so on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are going to talk about 100 Ways to Kill Your Church. Now, this is the title of an article that you wrote uh, just a little while ago, uh, Aaron, and I know some of the things you wrote there are more serious and some are just plain practical tips that will help pastors lead better. And so what we want to do in this episode, I'm going to touch down on several of these. We're not going to cover all 100, but you can read the article. We'll link it to you in the comments later. Uh, But we want to talk about these and have you comment on them and how these decisions help us to make our ministries better or pretend potentially to injure it. So I'm going to read these one at a time and give you uh, time for some comment and hopefully they'll be beneficial. But I think first we wanted to talk first a little bit about St. Patrick's Day. So what's the history of that? All right. Well, this is uh, to the benefit of my grandpa, Brian, I suppose. (laughs) I am somewhat Irish. I figure I'm probably about 5% French, maybe 30% Irish and the rest is English. There might even be a little bit of um, North American Indian in there from what I've heard maybe a couple hundred years ago. So anyway, More I digress. Irish than I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're a pure-blooded Dutchman, aren't you? Well, at least as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's St. Patrick's Day. It's um, March the 17th, the day before my mom's birthday. And uh, many branches of the Christian church. I mean, we don't formally celebrate it, but many branches of the Christian church formally celebrate St. Patrick's day as sort of a bit of a break from Lenten fasting. And really it's a commemoration of the death of St. Patrick, which tradition tells us happened in and around March the 17th, uh, 461, uh, AD. And, uh, it's I, it's an interesting celebration because it's actually a celebration essentially of St. Patrick's Christianization, if you could call it that, of, of pagan Ireland. And what's interesting is most people that celebrate St. Patrick's Christianization of pagan Ireland also celebrate the paganization of Canada <laughs> and the U.S. Yeah. So... It's just a, an interesting thing there. It's just another example of a, a holiday that for most people doesn't mean anything. But mm-hmm. we're certainly happy to give a tip of the hat to our Irish brethren on the show today and to wish everybody well as they eat food and drink with green food coloring in it, I guess. <laughs> I love it. That's good. So the first tip for how to kill your church is celebrate. No, don't celebrate St. Patrick. No, anyways. (laughs) Okay. So the first one you had on your list here of that article was avoid preaching the hard texts of scripture. Yeah. So these are no particular order, but this is a significant one. So there are parts of scripture that are bound to get people smiling and patting you on the back and feeling good about themselves. And we're not opposed to those texts of scripture. There's some texts of scripture that are very soothing and comforting and Just kind of you lean into it. You're like, I like listening to this. But there's other texts of scripture that challenge us and confront us with our own sinfulness. And one of the most challenging texts of scripture uh, are are those that, for example, don't give us credit for our good deeds. You know, all your good deeds are like filthy rags. It's like, say what? So I don't even get credit for the good stuff I do. I mean, I'm used to being chastised for the bad stuff, but now you're not even giving me credit for the good stuff that I do. But that text sets us up for the need for grace and spiritual regeneration in Christ. So it's really important that we preach the whole counsel of God's word and we don't assume that we know better than God or that the modern age has made certain topics or conversations moot or illegitimate or unnecessary. The whole counsel of God is profitable. So as Pastors and preachers are preaching systematically through texts of scripture. I I do believe there's a a role and a place for topical sermon series and addressing specific issues that are um, especially relevant for the immediate issues your congregants, your audience is facing. 
but most faithful preachers are probably going to spend quite a bit of their time just faithfully preaching through books of the Bible or portions of books of the Bible and don't, don't succumb to the temptation to skip the difficult passages. I think that's uh, really important because those will ultimately profit your people through rebuke or conviction and the like. Mm -hmm. And they often have the questions about them and they need them answered. So, uh, okay. Number two, refuse to exercise church discipline. It's unloving. I think it was John Calvin that said that a church that doesn't practice church discipline is not a true church. And I, and that's true. Discipline is not just cracking the whip at the third step of, you know, Matthew 18, where you take a person to the church and they're potentially excommunicated. We're constantly disciplining each other. We're teaching, we're correcting false thinking, we're correcting lies or filling in areas of naivety or ignorance in our lives. So we're constantly disciplining and blessing each other through our discipline. But when it comes to sort of the white hot, uh, fury of church discipline, if you will, where we have to confront someone, they don't repent, we take it to bring another witness in, they don't repent, we take it to the church, they don't repent, and we have to excommunicate them from the community of faith, hoping that they would repent. And the goal, of course, is always restoration, not revenge. To avoid that is not to do your people and your church any favors. It's really important that we go the extra mile and exercising grace and having good conversations with people. And if they are in error, hopefully 99.9% .9 of them, if they're truly Christians will repent, see the error of their ways. But at, there are some churches that literally never practice church discipline or they convolute it and confuse it. It's, it's a sim, it's a painful process, but it's a simple process. There's confrontation, there's confrontation with another party Obviously, those steps can be repeated, but they have to be, they can't be skipped. And then you take them to the church and they are read out of the assembly. And again, there's opportunities for repentance for them to come back. But what you don't want, you don't want people sitting in your pews month after month, year after year, living in unconfessed sin. These are Christian people, unconfessed sin, and no one says anything to them. This is not doing anyone a favor. It's not honoring to the Lord and it's certainly it's not a blessing to them. Repentance is always a blessing. The other side of repentance, the other side of confession is always a blessing to ourselves and to others. Hmm. Okay. How about this one? Treat your kid's ministry as a babysitting service. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of churches that put um, children sort of to the side. It's like, let's have our service. They focus on the main worship service and they jam the kids in a dingy basement or something or in, um, you know, a room that's decorated like a jungle theme, which, which is fine, but they put them in there and they just sort of entertain the kids. We're very passionate in our church that people would understand that our children's ministry is a part of our discipleship process. It's an extension of the responsibilities of the, the church. And uh, so it's important that we help people to see that and to function in, um, to, to establish Sunday school programs that actually, are a blessing to young people, memorizing scripture, learning to worship, learning to spend time in small groups and to address some of the, the issues that young people are struggling with is really, really important. Okay. How about this next one? Appoint immature worship leaders provided that they are good musicians. <laughs> well, this, this is a temptation in a lot of areas of ministry. It's like, we need a warm body. So we're just going to find someone to fill the role, but it's especially, tempting in worship ministry because in order to do worship ministry, you also have to be good at your instrument. And when you have maybe a dearth of musicians in your church, you have um, difficulty finding musicians in the church. This is going to affect the people that you may pick to fill those roles. And there is a temptation to say, well, this is a good drummer. This is a good vocalist and we're going to put them up front and they're going to lead, but spiritually they may be immature and it's important for us to avoid that. It's important for us to make sure that someone who's leading, someone who's playing on an instrument is leading God's people in sacred worship. This is a high calling. So we try to work hard at making sure that our worship leaders 
who are really lead worshipers, they should be worshiping first and foremost, are spiritually mature, are not show-offs, who, yes, are able to have the skills to play or sing with excellence. We're not looking for perfection, but excellence is important. But at the same time, we don't want to create a venue for them to show off or try to entertain. It's really important that we elevate Christian service when you're leading God's people, whether you're the one preaching from the Bible or leading in sacred song. This is a sacred calling and your spiritual walk and your spiritual maturity and your theological awareness matters. That's going to leak through in the way that you lead worship and it'll affect the culture, the spiritual culture, the spiritual temp- temperature of your church. Mm-hmm. Okay, this next one might be a little bit of a hot button issue. Remain socially disengaged from cultural crisis. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think I put this list together maybe two years ago now, but we're, we're in the heat of it. There's all sorts of crises taking place around us. It seems like every other week there's a new issue for us to address in podcasts and in sermons. And really the foundation of Western civilization is being undermined by godlessness and wokeism and aberrant religions and statism and the like, which we've talked extensively about on this program. But it's important for our people not to come into church and to hear the pastor preach. And it's like, um, there's an elephant in the room and no one's addressing it. You know, you come out of a, it's a crazy world where I was talking to a Christian recently and they said, we were going to a church week after week, we'd show up and the pastor would never say a single word about lockdowns, about tyranny, about the trucker convoy, about protests, any of that. But the minute that the Russian and Ukrainian war started, they they prayed for that issue in their sermon. Hmm. And you can't help but think, well, yeah, because that's the popular thing to do. That's what people are talking about. That's what CNN's talking about. Mm-hmm. That's what Fox News talking about. It's easy to to pray for and to talk about issues that people are sort of more or less on board with. But there's suffering and tyranny taking place around us. And so we have to, a lot of pastors make the mistake of, and seminaries contribute to this. There's, they train us and I've, I spent nine years in seminary. So they train us in exegesis and hermeneutics and theology and communication and church management and whatnot. So you get up and you're like, Oh, I'm so excited about this text. So I'm going to get down into the nitty gritty. I'm going to parse every word. I'm going to share with you the original Greek meaning, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. I'm going to cross reference into every passage I can think of. And we teach the Bible. Like this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. Okay. Let's pray and have the benediction. And we've, fill people's heads with truth, which in and of itself, I understand can be used by the spirit to transform, but we want to speak truth to the issues of the day. And our basic model for that is scripture itself. Every book of the Bible was written as an occasional document to address specific issues that God wanted that original audience to hear at a particular point in time in a particular cultural milieu. Every single book is written in in that way. I mean, some of them are even named after the people that originally received them. This is a letter to Philippi. It was a letter to the church in Colossae. So we preach the truth of God's word, but we need to preach it into the issues that people are experiencing. Now, this doesn't mean that we, we have to allow the culture to interpret the text, but we do need to bring God's word to bear upon culture and allow people to interpret and interact with the world around them through the grid of Holy scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay. We got another one here. It is pay your staff peanuts, not literal <laughs> peanuts, I'm guessing, but uh, just minimal amounts. Right. Right. And the opposite of that is pay your staff exorbitant salaries. So we, when I was, um, much younger. I remember talking to a friend of mine whose dad was a pastor in, um, uh, I think it was a Baptist church in Ontario. It was kind of an, an obscure group, a small uh, ethnically connected group of churches. And this guy would get paid like hardly anything. He was, the pastor was just broke. The church considered that godly. Uh, if he preached a sermon that 
the deacons didn't like, they'd come and literally turn off his gas meter or his power for the week because he what? lived in a church parsonage. <laughs> wow. And um, one, the, the story goes that one one of the deacons came over and was mad at him for something he preached and said, all you deserve is a loaf of bread and a chicken every week. Um, now, obviously, when you go into ministry, there's lots and lots of stories of pastors that are living high in the hog and probably not working as hard as they should and are taking exorbitant salaries and whatnot from the church. But I think that's an exception to the rule. It's often the opposite where people are in the congregation are living high in the hog and they think it's somehow more godly for their pastor or their staff to starve. And that's not, that's not biblical. The Bible says, let the elders that rule well be worthy of double honor. Don't muzzle an ox when it's plowing. And this is a reference to financial pay that there needs to be honorable um, pay systems developed in churches to support their pastors, their staff members. So we try to, obviously we're not talking about this to be self-serving. If we were self-servant, self-serving people, we wouldn't be in vocational ministry. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of other ways to make more money, but I don't think you have to worry as much as churches don't have to worry as much as they think they do about pastors trying to, bilk the system or something. It's just, that's not, most guys don't go into ministry for that reason. If anything, you can create a resentful pastor, staff, mm-hmm. team of staff members, or missionaries too, right? Anybody who's kind of being helped along by the church by being stingy and cheap. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, to, to do ministry today does require to be effective an effective missionary in this culture does require broad, very broad array of skills, a fairly high level of education and a lot of endurance and commitment. And so we don't want to make it difficult on our staff by being cheap with them. So we believe in being generous, obviously being reasonable, but being generous and not putting them in a position where they have to feel bad or apologetic because they're being well supported by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. And it really allows them to focus their efforts too on what they are called to do in ministry, right? I know with our our missions giving, then that allows them to not spend all their time fundraising, right? Right. You got to sort of work your way into it. Like when I started this church, I planted it from scratch. So I was like, hey, you know, whatever you can pay me is fine with me. And I, I went into it knowing that. But as a church grows and develops and, you know, the uh, the numbers are of people are increasing and everyone else is doing fine with their jobs. There is a responsibility to be conscientious and aware of the very tangible needs of your ministers. Mm -hmm. That's good. Okay. Number 36 on your list is use the word annual a lot. Yeah. So that's a bad thing to do just to make make it clear (laughs) using the word annual. Yeah. What I'm sort of poking at there is there's nothing wrong with having an, an annual meeting and an annual picnic and an, you know, an annual men's and ministry, men and women's ministry event. But the word annual can mean that you're traditionalized. There's nothing wrong with traditions. There's nothing wrong with annual or bi-monthly or weekly ministries. But if it's, well, that's just what we've always done mindset. We always do this this time. We always have a picnic. We always have a youth retreat. We always have a small group training summit. We always have this. We always have that. It can sometimes force you into a place where you're doing things that may not be the best use of your time. So in our church, we're very comfortable with doing great events and then reevaluating the next year, the next month. Is that worth repeating? If it's not, we're totally fine with not doing it again. We're totally fine with ministries having seasons to them where they they serve a role, then we close it down. So be careful if you're a Christian leader not to get into a rut where you assume, well, because we've always done ministry ABC that we have to always do ministry ABC. It can actually hinder you from something new and fresh that God might be calling your church to do. Just like in the lives of our you know, family relationships, we might say, okay, every year we typically vacation at this location, at this lake, in this cottage. Okay, fine. But what if things change? What if you find a better place? What if uh, it gets boring? What if people can't come anymore? Like we're flexible in those areas of life. In the same way, uh, like in our church, we just have a rule. We never put annual on any of our 
programs because we don't want to traditionalize our church to the point that people think if we did it last year, we have to do it this year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the last, those, those last dying words of a, uh, the last words of a dying church. We've never done it this way before. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be careful about that. Yep. Okay. Use prayer like caulking to fill in the gaps here and there. My mom used to tease my dad. She said when he would buy trim or when he would build something, he'd spend more money on trim and caulking trying to correct his mistakes afterwards. <laughs> but um, and that might be true. But caulking obviously has a place to fill in gaps. And uh, But prayer is not meant to be that way. And sometimes I get the sense that when we're doing ministry, we think, well, preaching is the real ministry or worship music is the real ministry. And if there's an awkward transition, well, we'll just throw a prayer in there. Or we're done talking, so let's just let's just throw a prayer in there. Isn't it the right thing to do? Or we just finished a hospital visitation. God forbid that we leave without having a prayer at the end. Look, these things are fine, but maybe we need to pray at the beginning. Maybe we just need to pray through the whole time. Maybe we need to preach on one occasion and completely pray on another occasion. We don't. We, we need to have a, a prayer without ceasing doesn't literally mean that we're praying nonstop, but there's a constant mindfulness of the presence of God and the need for God to move miraculously in our lives and to do what we can't do. So let's not minimize prayer by making it a fill in the blank. It's important for churches to, to consider whole evenings of prayer, concerts of prayer, weeks of prayer months dedicated to prayer so that it, it it's elevated to its rightful place as a significant aspect of Christian living and not pushed into the, the category of a footnote or again, used as caulking to just sort of fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. Here, we got a good one coming next. Okay. Find a pastor like Aaron with an, <laughs> find a pastor with an androgynous personality. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that's definitely not me, <laughs> but uh, this is what I'm I'm pushing at there. There's when I was growing up, I I went to we we moved around a lot for various reasons. So I was part of several churches, maybe a half a dozen before I was an adult, and they were some of them were brethren churches, some were Baptist churches, Bible chapels. So there was different structures within them, but I I sort of had this this stereotype in my mind that pastors were sort of more effeminate men. The idea of having a alpha male in the pulpit or a a dominant like manly man or a construction worker type pastor or, you know, a guy that was an athlete or that had a loud voice or a beard or dressed in flannel. You just wouldn't see that. It was, you would, you would tend to have this, a picture of a more frail individual with a soft-spoken voice in a tweed suit that was had a perma smile and was sort of neutral on most things. And I'm not suggesting that in the breadth of expressions of manhood that there's not room for a broad variety of expressions like there's there's room for soft-spoken men and more loud men and there's room for um bookworms and room for men that like to swing a hammer and there's 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 not like one stereotype but the the androgynous pastor that tries to almost play the role of man and woman at the same time and is is soft-spoken and never confrontational and is sort of can get along just as well with a woman as he can with a man and understands a woman's heart, just like he understands a man's that's not necessarily healthy, especially in a culture that increasingly is presenting us with the androgynous persona Mm -hmm. of, of uh, humanity. So I just want to say to um, men that might be listening to this, that you don't have to fit into a cookie cutter to be useful to the Lord. And the church also needs to leave plenty of room for men that are more aggressive, have those traditional uh, characteristics that are more aggressive, that are maybe loud or a little more naturally dominant there. We need to allow room for that. And there's a blessing to that. Now, 
I would say to pastors as well that because the role of office, the the role the role in office of pastor elder is reserved for qualified men, that it needs to be clear that you are a man, that you are an initiator, that you are a leader, that you are you have a strong desire to protect your wife, your children, your flock. So pastors, those those biblical, they're not even stereotypical, they're biblical characteristics of manhood. Those should be expressed not just in your home and family, but they should also be expressed in your church. You should have a, a great desire to protect your flock from harm, to, to put yourself in front of the lie, you know, the proverbial mm-hmm. bullet, yep. to champion godly manhood, loving leadership in the home, to not be afraid to call out a lie to identify an error. So that that's kind of what I wanted to uh, address under that point. Mm-hmm. So another one you have here is apologize a lot. It sounds humble. <laughs> yeah, well, apologizing is necessary if we've sinned, but first of all, we never apologize for God's word. You know, far be it from any creature to ever apologize to another creature for what our creator has said. But there, I I remember when I was a very young pastor starting off and there was a kid in our, my youth ministry that was just a complete punk. And he was very difficult to work with. And I, I was concerned about his father's influence over him and his father's role in the church. His father was fairly prominent in our church. And so I went to my lead pastor and I, you know, expressed this disrespect and behave the behavioral issues that this young man was demonstrating. And he said, well, we're going to make a meeting to meet. We're going to make a meeting and get together with the dad and address this issue. And so the, the lead pastor to his credit, met with me and the dad and the, and the kid and sort of said, look, this essentially at the end of the day, is like, you got to smarten up. Mm-hmm. And the dad's like, well, thank you. Thank you for this. I really agree. And then he looked at me and he's like, okay, now Aaron, maybe you can apologize to my son for something. And I was kind of stunned. I was thinking, apologize for what? I, nothing even crossed my mind. There was almost like this weird expectation in this man's thinking that if they apologize to me for something that I had to sort of, come up with something to apologize back for that somehow that was an expression of humility. No, if you're right, you're right. If you're wrong, you're wrong. And you don't apologize for being right. You apologize for being wrong. Mm -hmm. And this idea that it always has to be tit for tat, that everyone always has uh, some culpability in the problem is, is a falsehood. So apologize where necessary, but don't feel you need to run around apologizing to everybody for things you don't even think you did wrong as some sort of a false expression of humility. Mm-hmm. That was more for our Canadians friends than our American listeners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Canadians just have a propensity to say sorry <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so, okay. Use the words condemnation and conviction as synonyms, then avoid both. You know, when we preach, when, we, when I preach hard into the issues of the day and you ask questions of people, so you're preaching on a subject and you're like, now, is this true of you? Is this something that you have honored the Lord in? What we're aiming for there is to, for the truth of God's word to be used by the spirit of God to bring about conviction. Because what conviction does is it awakens us to our sin or our deficit and it motivates us if we want to honor the Lord to change, to change the way we think, act, or feel. Now, a person that is maybe sensitive or not listening carefully might assume that anytime they're experiencing conviction that they're being condemned. Like, how does that jive with the gospel? Because Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. So it's really important for us to understand. Jesus said, I came not to condemn the world. It's really important for us to differentiate between the two. Preaching to see conviction is to position people for life change preaching for condemnation. No, we're condemned already. And when we preach even to Christian audiences, our goal is not to make them feel like they're lost again. Our Mm -hmm. goal is not to make them feel like they're unsaved, that they're dirt in the eyes of God. We want to herald the beauty of the gospel, that we are whole in Christ and that Christ really has redeemed us from our sin and there's no condemnation. But just because we're not condemned doesn't mean we, there's, there shouldn't be room for conviction. 
So we need to aim for conviction in our preaching. And I don't mean that we can concoct that. Okay. What I mean, what I mean, what I say aim for it, I mean, preach in such a way that there's clarity and urgency and truth given that the spirit can then bring about that conviction in a person's life for change. I want to be convicted. Like I want to be convicted every day, convicted to do good, convicted to avoid evil. I'm only blessed by that, Mm -hmm. that there's only blessing in that. And so we need to aim for that. Mm -hmm. Okay. 54 on your list says avoid all theological words. Those were inserted into the Bible by mistake. (laughs) You know how sometimes people have this idea that big words are bad. It's actually, I've always found that a little bit confusing. I think big words are beautiful. I don't use, I I actually don't use, I can tell you this before God, I don't use big words to impress people. I just like words. And if there's a word that's a few letters longer that captures a thought really, really well, why wouldn't I use it if it's part of the English language? If it's in my toolbox, I'm going to pull it out and use it. If you're using it rarely and people don't know the word, you may need to describe it. So words are a beautiful thing. They communicate concepts and ideas and the better words, the better the concept. Well, in scripture, there's some big words, justification, sanctification. Strangely, people, a lot of pastors who are seeking to be seeker sensitive or connect with the contemporary world, instead of teaching people the meaning of those words and then helping them to understand them because they're theologically rich, they avoid them and they replace them with words that don't necessarily have the same meaning or depth of insight or can be, can, can be, they're not constrained by scripture. So their definitions change. Mm-hmm. Whereas scripture, the words in scripture don't change. So for example, the reason why our definition of sanctification doesn't change is because the word occurs several times in scripture and you can always cross-reference it and it always means the same thing generation to generation. Justification means just that. And you can study scripture to have a, a set static definition to that word but in culture words always change like there was a time when gay meant something different than it does now or bulrush um i should say cattail it can mean a bulrush it can mean an appendage on a feline it can mean a whip so it has a different semantic range to it and uh but biblical words as we study them out they mean the same generation to generation so i don't have a problem with using contemporary language to augment or to explain biblical terminology, but it's important for us not to throw out biblical terminology and just resort to, um, you know, modern temper uh, terminology. Mm -hmm. So sin, for example, it's a small word. So you can say, you know, sin, and then there's a bunch of other words that sort of kind of sort of point to it, brokenness, um, evil doing, you know, these sorts of words, struggles, you know, we struggle with sin. But if you're the kind of preacher where you use the word struggle, but really you're just using it as a synonym for sin and you never define it, it can almost mean the opposite of sin. Struggle can mean someone is, you're the victim, but in sin, you're actually the perpetrator. So we have to be careful about the words we use and taking people back to good, solid biblical language is super helpful. Mm-hmm. On the note of language, your next one here is use the word non-denominational a lot. It means nothing but sounds appealing. (laughs) Well, our church actually is non-denominational and it always has been. Even when we were connected to other fellowships of churches, we've never been part of a denomination. Most people don't even know what a denomination is. But what what I wanted to get to there is I find it fascinating that almost an attempt to market themselves as neutral or morally, you know, a step above the rest. Some churches like, Oh, we're, we're non-denominational. Oh, thank you for that. That's wonderful. You're non-denominational. It means nothing really it means nothing. Whether you're part of a denomination or not a fellowship association, you're independent. It's your beliefs and culture and values that matter. So you have to define yourself someplace, but this notion that being non-denominational is somehow being in the perfect middle or a centrist position is, is quite absurd. It's a word that, for the most part, isn't particularly helpful unless somehow you're pushing against the notion of another church controlling you, which we would reject, or a, um, you know, an ecclesiastical body outside of the local church having greater authority than its local eldership. Then you might want to use the word, but it's not, it's a word that sort of, in my mind, needs to be, um, you know, packaged up and put in the closet. Hmm. 
Fair enough. Okay, let people appoint themselves as missionaries without any church input. Over the years, I've had people come to me and they said things like, hey, Pastor Aaron, we'd like to meet with you. And you meet with them. We're like, well, you know, we just want to let you know the Lord has called us to serve in such and such a place. And, you know, we're planning on leaving at such and such a time. And, and then there might be a request for support. And we're like, oh, okay, well, if the Lord told you to do that, who am I to question it? But strangely, we don't do that with the office of elder or deacon in the church. No one show. I've never had anybody show up and say, "Hey, uh, Pastor, I'd like to meet with you." Hey, just wanted to let you know that I've um, I've appointed myself as an elder in the church here, and I'm commencing my duties on such and such a day, or I'm appointing myself as a vocational elder. I'm now on staff, and I'm requesting a salary. We'd be like, "Take a hike, bud." Like, who do you think you are? There's a there's a process where people watch, people affirm, people. Uh, affirm your calling and your, the, the timing of it. And there, it's a conversation in, in ministry. It's not a self-appointment, but for some strange reason, we have this idea, well, if it's a domestic assignment, then we have to be part of the conversation. But if it's an international global assignment, God must work differently. And everyone can just sort of assign themselves to the office of missionary. No, uh, missionaries should be accountable to a local church that sends them. And they should be vetted and probably go through some form of an ordination or recognition process in the same way that a local church pastor would. Hmm. Good stuff. Uh, never address gender issues. Well, we should probably just move on from that one because I'm terrified that the um, you know radical crazies okay, in so our culture. So moving on will. to the next. <laughs> <laughs> well, we 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 have to talk more in our churches about gender for the simple reason that this, the world around us is lying more about it and talking more about it all the time. And our young people and our, our, you know, our adults are being constantly inundated with lies connecting hate to heterosexuality and um, these sorts of things. So it's really important that we help young men understand what it means to be a man, an initiator, a leader, a protector, a lover of his, his wife. It's really important that we allow and teach younger women to be submissive, to be respectful, to be um, committed to, to serving in ministry and understanding their own gifts and abilities in the life of the church, nurturing children, raising up children, birthing children. That's reserved for women. Sorry, it's reserved for women. It's okay for us to talk about these realities and, and then to also address the lies Mm -hmm. of that we're seeing taking place in, in culture it used to be the, just the sexual lies, the sodomy, the fornication, the, the adultery we needed to address. But now we have to address deeper issues of identity where people think they can pick their sex. They can identify as anything they want and no, they cannot. The Bible is very clear. God made them male and female and there's respective roles. And most of what we do as male and females are the same that we're more alike than we are different, but there's also distinctives between the two and we need to champion that. Mm -hmm. You have here on number 71, decorate your church to resemble, resemble a funeral home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope I get some chuckles out of that one. I, okay. So this is more of a, an issue of just practical wisdom, but if you think about it, when people enter into a church structure, there's something about your architecture, your color schemes, your furnishings, the smell of the church, the cleanliness of the church that consciously or subconsciously says something about your values, your priorities, the audience that you're trying to reach, the, the milieu you're trying to create. There's no such thing as a, a neutral space, even if it's just a gray painted block building. There's that's not neutral. It says something about your priorities. And growing up, I think it was pretty common to go into churches and the people that were decorating the churches. And I'm not meaning, I, I know I have a lot of women that listen to the podcast and men, this is not a sexist statement, but the reality is, is more often than not, it would be the women that would be decorating the church, right? It'd be, there'd be flowers in the front stage and there'd be trees and, um, the furnishings would be the kind of things that, um, you know, a woman would 
naturally like. Now, it's this is not a right or wrong thing, but if you think about it, generally speaking, for whatever reason, it's easier to get women to come to church and to sit into the sound of the gospel and to engage than it is men. But if you can get the man, you get the wife and the family. So if you can get more men in your church. So one of the things we've done over the years is we've said even to the women that are actually doing a lot of the design work and decorating in our church, when you're designing and decorating a stage or developing props or designing logos, design it in such a way that it would appeal to a man. And if a man feels comfortable in that space, then you're, what you're doing is you're not manipulating, but you're, you're removing a potential obstacle. You're removing that stereotype that, and again, I'm not mean to be offensive, but that the church is just sort of for old blue haired ladies. This is a cultural stereotype. This is why even under lockdowns, you'd hear, I think there was one in BC and, and perhaps even one in Ontario, you'd hear public health directors say things like, well, we have to lock down churches because they're more vulnerable elderly populations. Mm. So in their mind, the idea of coming to a church like ours, where there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of college students and young families, it's just that they can't compute because we've contributed to a stereotype that says, no, it's for older, primarily females. So when it comes to church architecture, we have to consider how to augment and promote our message through sacred architecture and also even the color scheme. So the other thing is when you go into a funeral home, it tends to be sort of, you know, movie and it tends, mm -hmm. <laughs> I hate to say this, but the colors are kind of corpse-like. And if that's just what you see in a church, it can be a little bit um, gloomy. Mm -hmm. So thinking through the, the 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 way a church is decorated right down to the color schemes, the way logos and websites are designed and, and these sorts of things, I think is a strategic move that reflects the mindset of a missionary and that brings men into churches. And you, if, if men are indeed, if we actually believe that men are to lead families, when you get the men, you often get the family. That's, you can make much of that in terms of the sovereignty of God, but that just tends to be the reality of a situation. So that's some advice that I would throw for people to consider. Right. And tied to the appearances of your building, I think uh, this next one talks about like our online presence. So posting low quality sermons and worship videos on your website, definitely one of the hundred ways to kill your church. Yeah. You don't, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to have a website. You don't have to. Uh, you're not violating God's law by not having a website. You don't have to have a graphic designer. It's fine if you don't. But if you're if you're a church that has the means of, and you see these things as just another tool to make connections with lost folks, most people that come to our church look at us online first. We know that statistically, a huge number do. And the way your website, your media presence is designed online reflects what to expect. So it's a bad move to, for instance, use canned photographs that are of people that reflect the demographic that doesn't even attend your church. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're an elderly church, there's nothing wrong with that. You can, you obviously need to put some thought into how to reach the next generation. But if you're an elderly church, there's nothing wrong with that. And you're developing a website and all your website per pictures are people that are 25 sitting on checkered blankets and parks eating, you know, picnics. Um, but people like that don't actually go to your church. It's, it's actually kind of false, false marketing. So we, um, that's a, that's an important point. We also think that if you're going to post your sermon online as a blessing to people after the fact, it should never be a replacement for church. We're not Gnostics. There's something about meeting in person that's necessary we still baptize people. We don't just say, well, just think baptismal thoughts. We don't just say to people at the Lord's Supper, well, just think a lot about Jesus and we'll kind of skip the actual drinking and eating part. We're not Gnostics or something about the physical act that's important. And we want people to be in church. But if you're posting a sermon after the fact online on your website, make sure there's a. it's not embarrassing. I hate to say this, but I've seen a lot of very embarrassing church live streams and church websites, especially in the last several years where churches have sort of been forced into that. 
you actually are driving people away. It doesn't look like you know what you're doing. You're using a medium, a mechanism, a tool. You don't know how to use it. It's like a guy trying to pound nails with the claw side of his hammer. He looks like a fool. Mm-hmm. He's got the tool in his hand. He's trying to pound the nail, but he says he has the hammer flipped around backwards. These are tools that people use all the time. And if the church adopts these tools and doesn't know how to use them, you make yourself look foolish. So if you're going to use technology, make sure that you keep it good quality. That you have someone that has at least, uh, you know, an average understanding of how it's supposed mm-hmm. to work. Okay. This one, number 87 on your list. <laughs> Was this directed at me? Well, it might've been. <laughs> be cheap. Remember, keep it cheap. <laughs> yeah. So this is Chris again. I like to, if you don't know Chris, Chris is very frugal with his money. I like he to has- call it good stewardship. <laughs> <laughs> I make a lot of what God has given me <laughs> and I have it's, gotten better over the years. It's true. <laughs> so um, jokes aside though, there, there is a, okay. So churches often struggle with, adequate funding. Although I will say that if you have an, if you're on on mission with Christ and it's an exciting place to be and you do things with excellence, generally funding doesn't, isn't an issue. Okay. People tend to want to give to things that excite them. And if they're seeing, if they're part of a church where lives are being impacted, culture is being impacted, Christ is being declared, people are coming out hearing the gospel and being converted you're probably not going to have a whole lot of issues with funding unless you're just not working at it or, um, you know, maybe there's something off putting about the way you talk about finances in the church, but being cheap in the church has no place. The church should be generous. We say give big and we'll give big, like uh, let dump the money into the life of the church and we'll push the money out. We don't need to be stockpiling our funds. That's not the role of the church. But if we're going to spend money on new chairs, we're not going to go online and find the crummiest chairs you can possibly find where the legs fall off three months later as some sort of spiritual act of service to the Lord. If you're, if you're in a building where there's a lot of wear and tear, you're not going to buy the, the, you know, the $15 a gallon paint at the local recycling depot to necessarily paint your walls. Like, are you going to be painting them a lot? You're going to buy a quality product. Yep. So it's important for churches to, you don't want to be so glamorous that it's distracting, but at the same time, cheapness is an indication, especially in ministry that you don't actually value necessarily what you're, what you're presenting. So we like to, um, if someone is in need, we like to be, on the generous side, not the bare minimum. We like to be on the generous side if we're paying honorariums to visiting pastors. I've preached in a lot of churches over the years, and sometimes the honorarium you get doesn't even cover your gas to get there. Um, it's cheapness. So we, we don't want to be cheap in our honorariums. We don't want to be cheap in our our purchases. Again, we don't need to be extravagant, but I would say the, the same sort of principles that govern your personal expenses collectively should govern your church. If you go to a church that, uh, looks cheap. Like everything's done cheap. It's done shoddily. It's, it smells, it's, it's old fashioned. Mm. And then you're invited out to people's homes afterwards and they all live in nice contemporary houses. It's kind of a disgrace. It's kind of like, you know, the mic of the paneled houses and you're, mm. you're living in paneled houses and the Lord's temple is in ruins. So there, there needs to be a generosity reflected in our expenditures. Okay, we got just a couple more here, and then we have some questions we're going to read out from our listeners. Uh, Farm out most of your ministry to mission agencies and parachurch groups. Right, so we want to avoid that. And by the way, if you're just tuning in for some reason, these are all things not to do. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I'm a big believer in uh, institution building, uh, building institutions that are salt and light in culture and to the world are really important. It's not the sole job of the gathered church to do every single ounce of ministry that we can possibly think of. So it's good to have quote unquote parachurch organizations if they're on focus, not just replicating what local churches are doing and they're well run. But at the same time, sometimes parachurch organizations and mission organizations can almost function as if they're churches and they're not. They stand in their own two feet and they sort of tell the church what's what to do. The local church 
local churches are clearly biblically mandated institutions laid down in the New Testament, and they always need to exist until Jesus Christ comes back. So it's really important that we have strong local churches and that if, for example, you're sending missionaries as a local church, that the mission agency helps, doesn't hinder. I've known situations where missionaries are, are part of a mission agency and they're not even part of a local church, which is super weird. They're planting churches, but they're not even part of, they're not accountable to any local eldership or seminaries are training pastors, but they just do whatever they want. They don't, they're not accountable to the pastors, to the churches they're training pastors for. They're just, some of them are creating bad products They're or they're teaching things that are contrary to what churches actually want. And that's a problem. So the church, uh, gathered is often funding and and has a say in these institutions, whether they go forward or fall apart. And we just need to, to make sure they're not farming out our responsibilities to, to others. That's right. This, uh, this next one, never address either sexual sin or teach on sexual pleasure. So there's two sides to that, right? The one is not addressing fornication, adultery, homosexuality, these sorts of sins. That's a huge error to, for the sake of being bashful, not addressing those issues, but it's also a huge error every time you talk about human sexuality to address the sinful side and not the pleasure, the beautiful, the creational, the marital side of things. So pastors, if you're going to be a pastor and you're going to preach the whole counsel of God's word, you need to get over yourself and you need to be comfortable talking in real terms about human sexuality. Sex is a gift from God. It's a beautiful thing. In marriage, it's a wonderful thing. God created pleasure. That's okay to have pleasure in, in sexual intercourse. These sorts of things, people need to hear this. So they don't just think of it as some dirty thing and they become all prudish and Victorian about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, never ever preach on eternal damnation is one of yours as well on this list. Yeah, that's the one I put last. So it's it's important for us to, I know it doesn't always feel comfortable, but it's important for us to to remind people that if you reject Christ, you're not a Christian. There is a hellish eternity looking forward uh, that for you to look forward to, which you won't be looking forward to when you're there. So making sure that we're not just preaching the path to heaven, but we're also reminding people that they're on a path to hell apart from Christ. That needs to be taught. It doesn't need to be the subject of every single sermon, but people need to hear about hellfire. And they need to hear about damnation and eternal separation from God. This has to be part of our preaching once again. And I fear that while I heard it a lot as a child, that it's often muted out of much of modern preaching. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a few samplings of the 100 ways to kill your church. That's an article that Pastor Aaron wrote uh, there a couple of years ago, and we're going to post the link to that in the comments section or the um, description of this podcast. Before we go for the day, we wanted to take a couple of questions from our listeners. Just a reminder, if you have questions, you can email them to ask, that's A-S-K, at harvestwindsor.ca, and we'll take those questions uh, in as quickly as we can for the show. So this week we have a question coming in about women being apostles or prophets. And this is specifically uh, tied to a passage in Romans 16 verse 7, where the person is uh, reading out the passage and it says there, uh, it makes reference to Junia, uh, who is among the apostles. And so this, this listener is saying that she has a friend that's saying we need to repent uh, for saying that women should not be apostles or prophets or something along those lines. And so can you speak to that? Women as apostles and prophets and specifically Romans 16, 7. Yeah, well, one of the points of confusion that people often have when we talk about apostles, prophets, pastors, all, all this language that refers to, often refers to offices as if prophets even, if I haven't mentioned that, is that people can sometimes failure, fail to differentiate between a gift and an office or a general description of someone that's functioning in a certain role and someone that actually has an office. So, for example, a, a woman, uh, now there's obviously differences of opinion as to the precise meaning of prophet. So I believe in a closed canon of scripture, so I wouldn't see a prophet today as someone who can bind us to divine revelation. Um, 
I would see the prophetic gift as being one that polices God's covenant, that calls people back boldly to covenantal faithfulness. In fact, primarily that's what even the Old Testament prophets did. They were primarily reminding reminding people about what God had done rather than offering new revelation. So I would see the the prophetic gift as being one that is it's not so much about f- telling the future, predicting the future or binding people to a new chapter of the Bible or something like that, but it's it's policing God's covenants, calling people back to covenant faithfulness. So could a man or woman have that gift? Yes. Preaching, could a man or woman have the gift of preaching? Yes. Women are actually told to teach younger women in the pastoral epistles. But there there are then offices. Uh, Likewise, I would say that the the word apostle can refer to um, someone who'd seen the risen Christ, was appointed by Christ to bind the church to revelation, to heal the blind, to um, uh, cast out demons, etc., that was like an office you could say. And then there were apostles in our language, you'd say with a small a sent ones, people that would be sent out. Mm -hmm. So yes, men and women can be sent out as small a apostles, missionaries, men and women can preach the word of God. Uh, Men and women can have shepherding gifts like pastoral gifts So that's fine. And there's no gift that I know of that women are barred from. But when it comes to an office, if you have the office in in the New Testament of an apostle, then that was reserved for men Mm -hmm. uh, in every instance. So no, I would not say Junia was an apostle with a capital A who had that office or that recognition in the early church. And, I'm, and I'll, I'll add to this in a moment. Likewise, women can preach, but they can't be pastors or elders of congregations because the Bible forbids women from teaching men, adult men. And one of the requirements to be an elder or pastor is to be apt to teach. And that's not based upon culture. That's based upon created order for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Uh, so, we have to be careful when we say women can't be preachers. That's not accurate. Women can be preachers. They just can't preach to men. Mm-hmm. Women can have pastoral gifts, but they can't be pastor elders in the church. That's reserved for qualified men. Men or women could be apostles with a small a, sent ones, or pro- have prophetic gifts with a s- small p, so to speak, that would use those gifts in the appropriate context within God's boundaries to do the work of the ministry but they wouldn't function in an office like that in the church. So, you know, when we talk about Deborah the prophetess in the Old Testament, yes, she had prophetic gifts. Yes, she was functioning in a position of influence, but she didn't, she wouldn't have, there's no real office of, a, of prophet in the New Testament church, but it is a, a, a description of a role that had influence in the New Testament church as well as in the Old Testament community. So um, differentiating uh, a lot of this, by the way, I'll just, I could speak to this for hours and hours and I'm trying to be real quick here, but a lot of the, the angst that women have or egalitarian churches have boils down to a failure to differentiate between a gift and all the ministry opportunities that are available for you to put that gift into practice and actually wanting a, a, an office of high oversight within the Christian church. And there are limits and boundaries to that. Like good brother, brothers disagree with me on this. I think properly defined, a woman can hold the office of a deacon in the church, but it's not deacon like board member. It's not deacon like overseer. It's a practical servant in the life of the church. But I could be wrong on that. And it could just be that males can only hold the office of deacon and females can act diaconally. So differentiating between the roles, the, the, um, the, the practical expression of your gifts and holding the office is really important. So I want to be really clear then just to wrap this up. The New Testament forbids, it's very clear, it forbids women from teaching, offering biblical instruction within the church to men. Not to boys, not to older women, not to younger women, to men. That's 
that's reserved for qualified men in order to maintain those gender distinctions because preaching in a mixed audience is by nature an authoritative role. And because pastor elders in particular in the New Testament church are required to have that gift and to exercise it, then we cannot permit women to function as elder pastors in the local church. If you have place in your ecclesiology for deacons because they're just practical servants in the life of the church, I'm fine with that. If you have someone who considers himself to have sort of apostolic-like gifts, I'm not talking about on par with Paul or Peter, but they're sent ones, they're, they're missionary-minded, or they have prophetic gifts, they police the covenant, they tend to be policing the covenant in the life of the church, that's fine, but not in the company of qualified men and not in a, the position of a, a formal office. Okay, one more question coming in here, and we may address this more fully in another future podcast, but they wanted you to address Bill 67. And maybe you could let our listeners know about that. Yeah, Bill Bill 67 is something I hope to address in a future podcast, but it's essentially a, a bill that's being discussed right now that revolves around critical race theory. So many people have heard of critical race theory, which is sort of this theory that we're all innately racist. And even if you're not a racist, you are a racist. And white people are largely to blame for most of society's problems. So what this bill does is it identifies people by these um, kind of manufactured groups. So we have th this bill is written in such a way that's supposed to protect people from, for example, from Islamophobia, from uh you know, it's supposed to protect black people from white people and indigenous people from white people and all this sort of thing. So it lists all these groups and it's, it's to do with the educational system. So it wants to force in our educational systems an acknowledgement of racism and to monitor those that are teaching in those institutions to make sure there's nothing they're doing that are contributing to it. But typical of a lot of these discussions, it's not balanced. It focuses on specific groups it provides no protection to white people. It, in, it innately uh, implies that they're sort of the villains. And the reason for this, the backstory to all of this uh, is because the reason why there's such an attack on white people in woke culture, it's very simple, is because stereotypically, stereotypically, uh, white Europeans have for many centuries represented Christian values in culture. Definitely not exclusively. I get that. Mm -hmm. But if you look at church history, the church was very Mediterranean early on. And then as it grew around the Mediterranean basin, it, it, it picked up a strong, uh, you know, they, they built out a strong church in, in Africa, a black church, a Berber church. Then it spread into India and there was a strong Indian church. And then it sort of Christianity sort of migrated northward into Europe. So then for several centuries, we have sort of your stereotypical Caucasian clergyman representing Christianity to culture. Now that's changing. I get it. It's changing. And it just happens to be that right now the attack tends to be on those that represent those historical Christian values. Again, please don't overread my statements to suggest there was ever a point in history where there were only white people in the clergy or representing Christianity. But stereotypically, the European nations were more Christianized for many centuries than other parts of the world. That has changing. I think the... The, the cradle of Christianity has migrated largely uh, into South America and it, back into Africa. But historically, in the last several centuries, it's been represented by, uh, you know, Europeans. So there's an attack on that whole people group. Now, I reject all these categories. I'm very uncomfortable with people talking about black people and white people because those yeah. seem like opposites. And we're all just various shades of brown. Like even the language is bad language. And then 
Islamophobia. That's that's also um, a corrupt, unhelpful term. It doesn't doesn't mean anything. What do you mean? I'm afraid of Islam. Like on what level? I'm concerned about Islam. Islam is a corrupt religion. I'll just say it. So is Hinduism. So is Buddhism. So is secularism. So is statism. So is atheism. So is Taoism. So is Confucianism. That these are corrupt religions and worldviews. But am I afraid of them? And if I if I didn't like them, like, are, are we going to try to create a culture where people have to conform, like the thought police are going to go around and you, you can't think bad thoughts about another group or about a particular religious group? You can't be critical in analyzing their beliefs or their leaders? Like, is that the world we want to create? Well, evidently, that's the world that Justin Trudeau wants to create. He wants to create a world within which you literally can't criticize or speak ill of any ideology or group. And by the way, there's a blending of quote unquote ethnic groups or races and ideologies. So it's all in the old days you'd have, okay, this person's black or they're red or they're white or they're yellow. And those are ridiculous terms too, but that's, that's how we would describe people and based on their color. But now into that mix, we've thrown Islam and we've thrown LGBTQ stuff. And it's like, they're almost who you have sex with is almost on par now with your ethnicity. Hmm. Your religion is now on par with your ethnicity. No, <laughs> you can be a white Islamic. You can be a black Islamic. You can be, uh, and again, I don't even like that language, but you can have many different, any different skin color and be Islamic. So it's all, it's all a subversive attack on truth on conversation, on debate. It is an attempt to pretend to solve a social evil. And we all are interested in solving quote unquote racial prejudices, even though there's no such thing as races in the Bible, but we are interested in resolving those, but it's all smoke and mirrors. There's always an agenda. Christians don't need to be quote unquote conspiratorial and that they believe in things that just aren't true. But there's always a, a divine conspiracy going on. There's a spiritual conspiracy. There's something behind it. So all of these woke agendas have an ideology and a worldview around it that present themselves almost as if they are, they're taking the moral high ground, but there's corruption and evil nefarious purposes behind them. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, there's a couple of questions answered. You can email your questions in to ask at harvestwindsor.ca and we'll hopefully address them in future weeks. I just want to remind you all that we can be found on the CJXC radio on uh, Thursdays and Tuesdays. And also over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network, you can download their app and you can find our podcast there. Make sure to follow us on all the social media channels that are linked in the uh, descriptions and whatnot. And make sure to share it out, like it, rate it, get the word out about the Leadership Now podcast. And we will all tune in next week again with another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Roth.